0: So we're nearing the end of our Acts series. We have been in the book of Acts now for, it's going to be 11 months total. Can you believe that? Um, we've been almost in Acts a year. We have two weeks left after this Sunday. Um, so it's been a long journey, and what we find ourselves, the, the text we find ourselves with today is actually in some ways perhaps the climax of the book. It's it's the peak. It's the end of Paul's uh, at least recorded sort of main missionary work. Um, This is going to be the last key speech of Acts. Uh, It's probably not the last speech of Paul's life, but the last one recorded in Acts. Uh, And we're even going to see uh, the the very promise that Jesus made to his disciples at the beginning of the book in Acts 1-8, that he's going to see uh, his witnesses carry the gospel from Jerusalem all the way out to the ends of the earth. We see Kind of, Paul self-consciously seems to be referring to that and and identifying his role in this particular moment as carrying that out. Um, to catch you up, we had just we'll do a brief history lesson here. So, uh, Paul, if you remember, two weeks ago, Mark taught us uh, the passage where Paul had returned to Jerusalem, and uh, there was a controversy that broke out uh, about what Paul was teaching and what its connection was to the law of Israel. And it ended with them saying, away with him. They capture Paul and they begin to question him. So Paul then has to have, he's he's basically brought on uh, to have these public hearings with all these different groups. First, it's just a group of Jews. Then it's the Jewish Sanhedrin. Then it is the procurator of Judea by the name of Felix. That's last week. that What Josh taught was part of that from that conversation where they're uh, interrogating Paul. Then Felix's reign came to an end, and he was superseded by another person named Festus, who is now at this point in the story uh, over Judea. And he is going to have a hearing with Paul. Or he does have a hearing with Paul. And then he still doesn't know, like, how, what is going on here? Is, has Paul done anything deserving of imprisonment and or death? So he's going to now bring in uh, King Herod Agrippa II. So this is the grandson of Herod the Great, the one that tried to kill the infant Jesus. Um, he is now over certain territories in the region, and specifically he's over the temple, uh, and he appoints the high priest. And so uh, he's a significant kind of Jewish political leader, and uh, Festus is going to bring him in to hear from Paul so he can kind of weigh in on what, what do we make of this controversy that's broken out. There's a little note uh, in, the, in the chapter before where Paul has now been, so there's a few chapters of Acts. It tells us Paul has been in custody now for two years since two sermons ago. So time is just clipping by, and you can just imagine the frustration of Paul as he's, you know, he understands the Lord has called him to be Jesus' witness uh, to the Gentiles, really expanding out across the region, and now he's just being basically held here in one location, unable to continue his message, just having to keep defending himself and repeating what he's up to and how uh, he's innocent, and so on and so forth. Um, so two years Paul's been sitting here. And you can imagine uh, if there's ever a moment where someone might feel a bit defensive or a bit snippy, uh, this could be the one. Paul is being wrongfully accused of of distorting uh, the Jewish religion. He, uh, even the people who are holding him have have said, we don't really find any fault or any guilt with him, so let's just go ask someone else. Maybe they'll find him guilty. So he's just got to be frustrated beyond belief. And it would be very easy for Paul in this moment to become defensive. And now he's, he is going to make his defense. He's going to explain his perspective. But that's a bit different from what we typically mean when we use the term defensive. Um, defensiveness is, is that impulse in all of us to, to sort of refuse to hear what the other party's saying and to simply bolster the way we look, uh, to shoot down anything that might uh, make us look less than... Um, sort of wise, less than correct in the situation. And diffusing that defensiveness, it requires caring about the other person more than yourself. It requires caring about the other person more than your reputation or even uh, looking good. And so Paul here, he's, he's, he's a model for us in a frustrating situation beyond belief of how he can refuse to buy into that defensiveness and get get short and get angry with the people, but instead he's going to seize it as once again an opportunity to present the gospel. And I can think of no other reason for that except for the fact that he deeply loves Jesus and he deeply loves these people that are questioning him. So we're told uh, that the day here is is a day of, in, in chapter 25, quote, great pomp The military tribunes are there. It says the prominent, influential men of the city are there. Uh, There's gathered crowds. There's the procurator of Judea. Now there's this King Agrippa here. And they tell Paul, okay, what? speak for yourself. Like, defend yourself. Lay it out. And so Paul steps forward, and he begins to give this speech. Once again, his final speech from the book of Acts. Uh, And what we're going to do is we're going to break it into four sections, what seem to me kind of four main themes he's he's laying out. And in each one of these, we're going to see kind of one key piece of evidence Paul uses, not only to explain, like, why he's doing what he's doing, but to offer an invitation to those listening of why they, too, should place their faith and trust in Jesus. Sound good? Okay, that's the end of the history lesson. Let's jump in. We start in verse 4. And this section is going to highlight Paul's faithfulness to the Jewish hope that he'd received. He says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So Paul's first point here is similar to what he laid out in Ephesians chapter 3, if you remember that passage where he just rattles off his Jewish credentials. He's a Hebrew amongst Hebrews, a Jew among Jews. A member of the strictest, sort of most theologically sound, tight, sort of structured group of of, of Judaism, the Pharisees. And he knows better than almost anyone. He has more authority than almost anyone to speak of, of what Judaism is about. And what he's saying here is, look, I know our faith and our faith foretold of this Jesus. Everything about Jesus' life, death, his resurrection, his appearances, his ascension, it was promised us. Everything about what I'm preaching is in full continuity with what came before in, in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. He says, my message is orthodox. It reminds me of, of in Acts, or I'm sorry, in Luke 24, right after Jesus has, has ascended, he's appearing to some disciples on the road to Emmaus. And, and Luke records Jesus telling these disciples that, uh, or not telling them, but it says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, which is just shorthand for saying throughout the Old Testament, so starting in the first books all the way up through the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning him, concerning Jesus. That, that the entire story of the Hebrew Bible, from, from the earliest promises in Genesis, uh, up through all the covenants God made with his people, um, every future prophecy, every hope, even the, the very temple and sacrificial systems themselves, every one of these components finds its fulfillment and its completion in Jesus, Paul is arguing There there is, I mean, you feel as exasperation. Why should anyone be surprised that there's resurrection? Resurrection hope is the very thing that our people are praying for and hoping for and longing for day after day after day. You just didn't think it was going to be Jesus who was going to be the first fruits of that resurrection. But everything about Jesus has subverted their expectations. Why should this be any different? So that's point one. The message of the gospel is in full continuity with everything that came before in the Hebrew Bible. For Jews in the crowd, this is probably pretty persuasive. For others, not so much. So let's keep going. We'll read on in verse 9, and he's going to focus here on his supernatural commission he received from Jesus. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, But when they were put to death, I cast my votes against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. And you have to imagine Paul is is just stricken internally with regret at this point. And I tried to make them blaspheme the one true God. In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. So I was set up to be skeptical about this whole Jesus thing. In fact, I was as skeptical as anybody. I was terrorizing the Christians who followed this Jesus. But something happened. He says, at midday, O King, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. Next slide. And when he had fall, all fa- when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So Paul's second point is that not only is, is the gospel message in full continuity with all the history of Israel, but Jesus supernaturally revealed himself to me. Paul experienced something he could not deny in a flashing, blinding light, an audible voice from the the resurrected Jesus. He came to see that everything he was fighting for and against was backward. And so Paul has to share that. I, my life was going a certain direction, and in an instant, everything was 180 degrees flipped around on its head. Some of us in this room may have, have had some of these transcendent experiences with God. I've talked to some of you that have shared those. Moments where just inexplicably you've felt the presence, the love of God break into your life in some way that's not explainable in any other way that you're aware of. You've experienced his love poured out. Perhaps you've even experienced a prophecy. I mean, supernatural stuff happens. That's what we believe. We don't think God is incapable of doing these things anymore. In fact, he can do whatever he wants. But there's also another really important thing to remember, and that's whether through some sort of direct supernatural experience or not, something truly supernatural happens every single time Someone comes to faith in Jesus. Did you know that? It's not simply a little internal, um, like, oh, I was kind of thinking about this, and I decided that, oh, maybe I'll do this Jesus thing one day, and that's that. What Paul goes on to say is that the message entails that, that the gospel will open people's eyes, that they will be turned from darkness to light. He says in verse 18, from the power of Satan to God not just from the power of Satan to God, but that they may receive the forgiveness of their sins, every past, present, and future thing they've ever done to harm a fellow human or to de-glory, if such a thing were possible. The God of the universe has been forgiven in that moment. And not only that, but they're given a place or an inheritance among those who belong to God. They're grafted into a community. They're given a new family. They're given an inheritance. And there are countless other supernatural things at the moment of salvation. The Holy Spirit of God comes to indwell you as his temple. Uh, You're given a heart of, your heart of stone is softened and turned into a heart of flesh that desires the things of the Lord. And on and on and on. It's a supernatural moment anytime someone comes to faith in Jesus. You know, I... My own story of coming to faith I used to be a bit embarrassed of because it, it wasn't super exciting or wild or anything like that. I've since, uh, you know, I've, I think I've since become just more appreciative of anyone's story who comes to Jesus, but, but, but mine has become a bit more exciting for me to tell. Um, for me, it all began with my mom when I was a young child. I remember, uh, I, I mean, honestly, my, my earliest memories are of sitting on my mom's lap, and her opening these little children's Bible stories and just reading to me who Jesus was. And, you know, the stories can't communicate a lot of complex theology more than, there's a God, he loves you, Jesus was his son who came and died to clear every barrier between you and him. He wants nothing more than for you to come and embrace him, and he waits here with open arms for you to do so. He loves you, feel trust in him, he, your security is secure with him, your future is secure with him. Just simple little truths. And I remember one day, you know, after probably years, I mean, probably from, from birth, my mom reading these stories, I remember her asking me one day, she could sense that I, I wanted to trust Jesus, and she asked me if I did, and I said yes, and uh, we prayed together. And I began to follow Jesus. And that whole, I I believe that whole host of things we just described happened for that little four-year-old Cameron in that moment. The very spirit of God came inside. Darkness to light, death to life. The rule of Jesus, forgiveness of sins, future promises and hope secure. How many, just quick poll of hands, how many of you came to faith in in Jesus as like a young child, a pretty good number in the room. If you're like me, there's often some detangling you have to do um, later on. You know, once you know, by the time I was in college and had a bit more of a sophisticated understanding of Christian theology and salvation and how all this works, you, you kind of have to look back and go, "Okay, well, what did I really know? What was I really trusting in it for?" And that's you know, a kind of a challenging thing to wade through. But I, as I've waded through it, prayed through it, thought about it, talked about it, I, I think for myself, that moment on my mom's knee was the sincere point from which I passed from death to life, and I've walked with Jesus ever since. So, um, just as an aside, if you're a, if you're a parent, <laughs> and uh, maybe you're maybe you're a stay-at-home parent, and you feel like uh, what you do has no significance. <laughs> May that story be a deep encouragement to you that when you're seeding the gospel, even to little children, and that's all you're doing. Maybe you have no time or margin for anything else, but to keep them alive and feed them the gospel. Um, You're doing a deeply subversive act in our world, a deeply powerful act and an act that the Lord might just inflame in one moment and secure a little child's life and love for the rest of eternity. Amen? Yeah. Um, so here's my point. Here's my point. Every time someone comes to faith in Jesus, it is a supernatural event. And so I think what Paul's saying here, something supernatural happened to me. It applies, yes, for Paul's Damascus Road experience with the blinding light. But it applies for you as well. If you haven't had that experience, if you've simply had someone faithfully sharing the gospel and one day you went, oh my gosh, I think this is true. That is, in all sincerity, no less supernatural. And you too have the responsibility to share that, to share it. Like As Josh likes to say, I love that. If it was good enough to save you, it's good enough to save someone else as well. Sometimes we get scared and think that it's not. So that is Paul's second point, point. and he's told that he was made a servant and a witness, and you know what? He's not content just to, just to talk about it, but can you see he begins preaching here. He, he doesn't just say, yeah, and so I had this experience with Jesus, and he told me I was going to do some stuff, but he starts doing the stuff here in the moment. He's, he's preaching that the gospel declares that God will open their eyes through Paul's ministry, that they might turn from darkness to light, the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. And then he keeps going. Verse 19. He moves into what he does with that commission he received from Christ. Verse 19 says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. But I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And to this Day I have had the help that comes from God. So Paul was obedient. He did become a witness. And again, he has played a substantial part in what Jesus said was going to happen, that the gospel was going to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And here we have Paul about to be sent all the way to Rome uh, to once again have to testify to exactly what is this crazy message that's stirring up so much trouble, and the gospel will continue to go out forward. Sorry, these would be easier with two free hands. So Paul, um, his third point is this. As I look back, all this time, I can see the faithfulness Of God all around me, that he has sustained my ministry. As he looks back, he sees God's provision, his sovereignty, his protection, his sustaining work. And if you've been paying attention to their acts, you know Paul has been stoned. I mean, there's one text where it's kind of ambiguous. It looks like he may have been stoned to death, and then the disciples come and pray, and he gets up, and it's like, did they just raise him from the dead? Maybe, I don't know. The man suffered some hardship, he was betrayed, he was mocked, he was ignored, he's gone hungry, he's been essentially houseless for a long time. But despite all of that, he looks back and he sees God's faithfulness every step of the way to accomplish what he, was gonna, to accomplish what he promised to accomplish through Paul, way back when this dramatic encounter happened. And so I think we do well We would do well this week to do the same thing, to take stock of God's faithfulness in our own lives. Some of you I know, I have a really good habit. This is not me. I have little half-started attempts in my notebook sometimes, but some of you are really good about journaling, which I think is a really powerful practice. Some of you will prayer journal and write down every significant prayer request that comes up, and then when you see it answered, you'll go back, you'll date when that was answered, how it was answered. And if you do that over a lifetime, what a powerful witness to the fact that, in moments of doubt, that this Jesus is real. He's answering prayer. He's doing real things. When you've weighed big decisions that had to be made, and you've consulted the Scripture, you've brought in your Christian community, you've, you've prayed about it, you've talked about it, you've wrestled, you've made pros and cons lists, you've done all your due diligence... And you've just agonized over it. And you look back a couple years later and you see, wow, God actually was faithful to provide an answer, to provide a path, to provide good things on the backside of that. We so easily forget those things. And I think this this is Paul just recounting the ways in which, despite all the hardship, and this is not a promise that there's going to be no hardship. But despite the hardship, he can look and he can clearly see the evidence, the fingerprints of God's loving and gracious work just pushing him along the way to the point he is here. So we would do well to remember and to to memorialize these key moments in our lives where God has shown up, where he's answered prayer, where he's done something that we really can't explain otherwise. We'll need that for the future. We'll need that in the valleys. And Paul shares it here with his listeners. And then he really begins to preach in this same passage here. You see it? So I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great. And by small and great, what he's saying is in a crowd full of the influencers of the city and the royal people and the the governors and all this stuff, he says, whether small, whether the lowliest in the room, or whether the greatest in the room, the gospel is for you too. You're not too small enough to be worthy of it, and you're not too big enough to not need it. You see that? The gospel is good news for both the king and the slave. It's for the Jews and Greeks. It's for women and men. It's for rich and poor. It's for slaves and free, professors and dropouts, the working and the stay-at-home for parents and children, for married and singles, whatever category of humanity you can come up with. The gospel is for you, and it is good news for you. And so Paul is going to take every opportunity, no matter who it is, to put that good news before them. Even in the middle of his trial, he goes on, he says, he repeats what he, how he started this whole message. But saying nothing but again what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. They predicted that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And so that is what I'm doing, says Paul. Paul. So they've had enough. Festus, Agrippa, they've had enough. The the preaching's getting a little out of control. So we have this final dialogue here. And this is what happens. As Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Now, can that happen? Can great learning drive someone out of their mind? Yes, it can. is that what's happening here? No, it's not. Paul, very matter-of-factly, I am not out of my mind, <laughs> most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the King knows these things, and to Him I speak boldly. He, the, uh, Agrippa, would know about the prophecies that Jesus had fulfilled. He's in effect saying. And I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, and hear this point. For this all has not been done in a corner. What does that sentence mean? I think it means a couple of things, one in particular. The first, Christianity is, have you ever thought about the fact that Christianity is actually fairly unique in many ways uh, in the midst of world religions? In fact, it's one of the only world, major world religions that isn't based on a single person's supernatural insight or encounter. Have you thought about that? The the Christian Bible itself, from Genesis uh, up to Revelation, all of it is written by a whole host of writers uh, in different literary genres, written at different times of history, with different perspectives, somehow all congealing into a unified, coherent, consistent whole. But that thing is diverse. There wasn't some some, you know, in a back room group who was manipulating and, and coming up. It's, it's all sorts of authors throughout all sorts of places and points in history. Even the founder, Jesus, didn't write the scripture, scriptural text. Even take the, the gospels themselves. What are they but four accounts from four different people and standing in different relationship with Jesus, writing their sort of divinely inspired uh, view of what Jesus did and what he was about, they all are perfectly harmonious with one another, but they are very, uh, uh, very unique in their presentation of Jesus also at the same time. None of them was given preference over the other. The whole faith is, is born out of a plurality of experiences recorded and transmitted out throughout history. Probably the one he means more so is this number two, that the works of Jesus and the apostles, the miraculous works, they were done publicly and pervasively. I mean, throughout uh, Luke and Acts in particular, Luke is very good about giving us little names. So he, uh, Jesus performed a miracle and it was in the town of this person. Why would he leave that little, what's the point of that little bit of information? He's letting you check his sources if you're an ancient reader. Wait, so did Jesus raise, raise someone from the dead in that town? I don't know. Go ask Joseph, who lives there. This was not done in a corner. The, the events of Pentecost, where the disciples received the, uh, the uh, tongues of fire, they began speaking in tongues. It's this huge kind of kind of chaotic moment outside the temple publicly. It wasn't in the upper room. Remember, they were driven out into the streets, to let this crazy thing happen that was the birth of the church publicly, publicly. There are very few of these biblical stories that are sort of like unverifiable, um, where, where you wouldn't be able to like, I don't know, I wasn't, no one was there. I mean, I guess we'll take Paul's word for it, but no. What he's saying, it was not done in a corner, just ask around. And I think all of these things contribute to Really understanding um, the rapid rise of Christianity because if Jesus hadn't actually raised from the dead, I I just, people posit all kinds of ideas about how Christianity could have become the the force it is today over 2,000 years. Uh, I just don't think any of them have any, you know, you read them and you're like, I just don't think that's plausible. There's no historical plausibility there. Are we really to believe that the, the disciples who bet everything on this Jesus who was publicly crucified? Would have then gone gone to their deaths for some sort of conspiracy that they concocted up? Are we really to believe that the crowds uh, of Christians um, who, who came to faith in Jesus would have uh, would have done so if if they had just asked, hey, did that Pentecost story actually happen? But like, no, we were there that day, nothing ever happened. Something was brewing and it was brewing publicly. So Paul's point here, his fourth bit of evidence, is that the nature of Christianity is public. It's out there. It's, it's, Jesus and the apostles' works were, were held out publicly for people to look at and to say, you know, that's either the work of God or the work of Satan, but I can't say that it's not work. Something happened. And Paul concludes this way. And I think this gives us the whole point of this sermon and why Paul is using his defense to actually just continue to point people to the gospel. Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to become a Christian? And Here it is. Paul said, whether short or long, no matter how much time I have, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. That's the point where Paul could have been flustered and frustrated and put upon by these proceedings. Again, he's held for two years here going through this stuff. My heart ultimately is just that you would all come and find what I have, which is the joy that's found in knowing that there is a God. He's good. He loves you and he's cleared every obstacle between you and him. If you'll just receive it. So they agreed If you read a little bit further, they agree on Paul's innocence. Festus and Agrippa are like, yeah, I don't really see any reason why he should be held. Certainly not executed. But Paul had appealed to Caesar, kind of as a a defense mechanism earlier. So on to Caesar, they're going to send him. Um, And the next two weeks in Acts, we're going to kind of see Paul's journey to Rome. And then uh, we'll end where the book of Acts ends um, in two weeks. For our purposes today, I think it's really important to note that what Paul spoke to the crowd that day, some 2,000 years ago, the Spirit is speaking to us all right now. If you're a believer, I think we would do well this week in response to this text to take stock, to have a week of reflection where we look back on how God has been present in our lives up to this point. Maybe it's been through your study of the Scripture and seeing the beautiful harmony of the Old and the New Testaments and the way the prophecies have been fulfilled like the first thing Paul mentioned. Maybe you've had dramatic supernatural encounter that's unexplainable otherwise that you just need to make sure, you need to go write that down and make sure you don't forget it. And the same goes for Maybe less what we would think of as supernatural moments, but supernatural nonetheless, where the Lord has captured your heart, where you've fallen more deeply in love with him. Maybe that first time you decided to trust him. We need to memorialize these things. Maybe it's taking stock of your life and just seeing the subtle ways that God has been nudging and protecting and guiding and leading, and even through tragedy, even through trauma, the way that he has refused to to leave your side, even through all that. Or maybe it's just pondering the the public nature of our faith and the fact that these things were not done in a corner. We're not fools to believe that a man rose from the dead because they saw him. It was out there. So whatever it is, I would encourage you, find some time this week to, to take stock. If you're a journaler, do that. If you're just a verbal processor, do that. Find someone to process with. But may that drive us to worship in our response, to a deep thankfulness. And may it drive us to have the same attitude that Paul had, where he would set aside defensiveness, set aside the need to prove himself innocent, and to just continue to share the gospel, because it's good news. To love others more than our own personal security and safety. But secondarily, if you've never trusted Jesus, He's making His invitation right now. With Paul, with, with the testimony of, of this ancient book we all have in our hands, I say this if you've ever wondered if there's a God, there is. If you've ever wondered if He's good, He is. If if you've ever wondered if he actually loves you, he does. And if you've ever wondered if there's any way to overcome the distance you perceive between yourself and him, if all those other things are true, there's only one, and his name is Jesus. And that's God himself taking on human flesh to close every distance and every gap that was set between us. He did it dealt with every barrier, and he just says, come and trust in me. And it will be a supernatural moment. You'll not only receive forgiveness of your sins, you'll not only receive new right relationship and intimacy with the God of the universe, you'll not only receive uh, a, a new community to belong to, a new family to grow with, you'll receive all He'll be grafted into all the future promises where God says he's not going to let the world continue to crumble and abuse itself and one another, but he's gonna, there's going to be a day that's good news for everyone where he's going to put the world right. He's going to rout out every bit of evil and abuse and sin, and he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth gloriously ruled by the only true king who has any business ruling on a throne, which is King Jesus. And his reign will be good news for the strong and the weak, the rich and the poor, anyone who would come and say, yes, Jesus, I'll, I'll bend my knee to you. So I invite you today. This could be your supernatural moment. If you feel for the first time Jesus stirring something in you, there's going to be a prayer team up front that would love to just pray and process. If you don't have the courage to come down front, just lean over to somebody in your row, and if they look like a Christian, <laughs> and say, hey, I don't know, you look like a Christian. A little bit awkward. No. Ask them to pray with you. The gospel's good news. Amen.